Hi, welcome to the Data Wranglers, an ongoing conversation about the latest trends in modern data engineering, hot takes, and insights into the data industry. I'm your host, Joe Hellerstein, co-founder of Trifacta and Chief Strategy Officer, and also a professor and Jim Gray Chair of Computer Science at UC Berkeley. And I'm your co-host, Jeffrey Hare. I'm also a co-founder of Trifacta and a professor of computer science at the University of Washington, where I direct the Interactive Data Lab. Welcome to the Data Wranglers. On Thursdays, we're going to give our listeners valuable insights on what's new, what's important, what's trending, what's hot, and what's not in modern data engineering. That's right. So if you're in the data business, whether you're a scrubber, an analyzer, just learning about it as a student, we'll bring you information and insights that'll make you sound smarter at parties, and more importantly, do better work with your data. So this podcast is for experienced folks and newbies too, those who are dipping their toes into the X's and O's of data for the first time. We are going to be bringing on some of the biggest names in the industry as guests, genuine thought leaders in this space. You won't want to miss an episode because we're going to have fun, impromptu, spirited, unscripted, and unplugged conversations. It'll be frank talk about data, unlike anything you've heard before. And don't be surprised if we have other co-hosts like Adam Wilson, our fearless CEO. Joe. What makes our show unique? What will people hear on the Data Wranglers they won't get anywhere else? Well, the thing I'm most excited about is the roster of guests we're going to be bringing in. Um, after many years in both academia and industry, we have a network of folks who are leaders in open source, leaders in startup companies, and leaders in established players who have a variety of perspectives on where the data space is going. It's going to be really exciting to hear their view of what's coming next. Yeah, and I'm excited to blend with that our research perspective. So not only looking at current business imperatives and trends in industry, but the longer term view in terms of what new technologies and trends are on the horizon that may change how we work with data. Not only at the systems level, we're talking about databases and orchestrating workflows, but also at the user level. So what type of new interfaces or societal issues we have to grapple with um, as data professionals. So in sum, a balance of what's happening now and what might be next. And that's why you'll never want to miss a Thursday episode of the Data Wranglers. So make sure to subscribe to the Data Wranglers wherever you like to get your podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Trifacta, the data engineering cloud. You can also listen to and subscribe to the podcast at trifacta.com slash podcast. And if you have a question or a topic you'd like us to tackle, reach out to us at datawranglers at trifacta.com. So, Joe, as you know, you know, buzzwords come and go um, in the computing industry. And, but what I'm hearing a lot these days, um, you know, and sometimes even out of my own mouth, is data engineering. So I'd love your take on this. So tell me, Joe, you know, in your mind, what exactly is data engineering? Well, engineering, you know, we're, we're using the word with intent, right? So if you go look up engineering on Wikipedia or the dictionary or what have you, engineering is the use of scientific principles to design and build stuff. Right. Uh, and the term engineering comes from the same root in Latin as the term ingenious. Right. It's about being clever, about devising things. And so data engineering is the use of, you know, principles from math, from computer science uh, to achieve systematic production of valuable data products. All right. Well, I, I appreciate the very professorial answer, um, but let's try and break this apart for, for everyone else. Is this a kind of software engineering? Yeah, so I'd actually say emphatically no. Data engineering is not software engineering, and you shouldn't have software engineers doing data engineering or vice versa. 
in software engineering, the primary product is software, right? And data engineers are responsible for producing useful data products on the regular. So that'll involve working with software and occasionally it'll involve maybe writing some software depending on what kind of shop and what tools you use. But honestly, it's a different set of responsibilities and skills and the tools are different too. And so I really think it's a different headset, different skill set and different set of folks. So, you know, Jeff, in the buzzword bingo, uh, let me throw this one back at you. Yeah. Data engineering versus data science. What's your take? Oh, that's interesting. So I think we've been talking about data science, you know, I'd say for a longer period of time than we've hearing data engineering. So I think they're tightly related, but also importantly different, right? So they share some overlapping needs. Like we all need to, you know, load data into production systems, prepare it for use. And that's something that data scientists are no stranger to. But at the same time, you know, data scientists, you know, they're responsible for producing, you know, models, uh, predictions, um, aiding decision making. And so data engineering is more about that productionalization of the, the data uh, pipelines that then fuel into the, these things, um, oftentimes making that data available for downstream data science tasks. So I see them, you know, tightly coupled and yet often drawing on um, some disparate skills, depending on what part of an overall data pipeline you're focused on supporting. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you're painting a picture of sort of two different personas working together. And I think I see that some places. You have data engineers who are sort of productionizing things, making sure it's robust, making sure it's reliable with downstream data scientists who are doing the statistics or what have you. But I also hear all the time, you know, in some shops, data scientists basically are data engineers. That's what they mostly spend their time doing. And I also hear, you know, sometimes data engineers have to do a lot of data science to do their job well. Because uh, they have to keep track of data quality and, you know, what is that but a form of data analysis, right? So I guess it seems to me like it depends on, on the shop you're working in. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think, you know, there's companies big and small. And so how these roles get broken up depend a lot on, you know, the size of your team, your resources, and of course, the, the backgrounds of the people involved. And if this is, you know, data engineering, you know, is, is modern engineering or maybe modern data practices, you know, maybe you can help give us some perspective, you know, being the more senior colleague here, what's antique engineering uh, in this context? Yeah, well, thanks for that, Jeff. That's, that's really very kind, young man. Uh, so I'm kind of old. I'm not that old, but I'm kind of old. And my mom actually built data systems Back in the 70s, in the 60s, she uh, was a systems analyst, they used to call it back then, speaking of job titles that have gone away. Uh, she was basically a programmer for data-centric apps, um, for government, education, those things. So, you know, I do have some tactile memory of going to the punch card room with her. Uh, so I am kind of old, it's true. So antique data engineering, like how did we do it back in the day? Well, you know, the analogy I like to make, because it's kind of true, is like, Back then, data engineers were like peasants with hand tools, and they were working in the service of the lords, you know? That sounds very uh, feudal. Yeah, yeah, it was very feudal. Like, you weren't really allowed as a data engineer to do much without the blessing and support of the priesthood of IT, right? So there were these folks who would manage all the computers, and they had to have set up an expensive rack of machines that were the crown jewels of your company because computers were so expensive. Storage was super expensive. Uh, and then there were special priests in the priesthood who were in charge of you know, administering the database, right? And that whole like magisterium of systems administrators and, and database administrators had to give you the privilege of loading your, you know, your, your unknown, undesirable raw data onto their pristine property. So 
when you got through all those hurdles, then you could do your job. But like I say, the work was kind of done with hand tools, um, by which I pretty much mean programming. So folks who were working with data were writing code. And you kind of had your choice as time went on of writing code by typing at a terminal, you know, or you could take that very same code and you could specify it by picking the command that you were going to type off a menu. Or maybe there was a box with a picture of the command and you could drag it onto a canvas. And that was considered like graphical, but really it was exactly the same program you would have written going, except instead of typing, you were just moving the words around on the screen with a mouse. Right. So those were the days. Um, and, you know, every part of that whole thing, the permissions, the uh, talking to the folks who run the machines, their jobs, which actually were really hard jobs. I, I don't mean to make fun of those folks. Um, all of that was like super expensive, super painstaking, lots of administrative hurdles and really hard to maintain over time. And so much of that has changed. Well, you, you painted a picture that actually um, put together thoughts I actually never um, had in my mind at the same time, which is, with this priesthood of IT, you have something akin to maybe nowadays a, a Protestant reformation of data where, you know, no longer can the priesthood be the sole arbiters of your, your, your access to, to what you're, you're hoping to, to achieve. Um, and then, you know, interestingly enough, you know, getting you know, too professorial again, right, that's at the same time as the rise of the printing press, which made that possible, which was the idea that technologies change how we work with information and how it gets distributed, you know, and you were starting to draw that this picture of tools, you know, from punch cards, which thankfully, you know, in my young age, I never had to deal with, though, though I did have to learn, you know, assembly, so I can at least uh, go that low. But then moving up from, you know, coding into kind of menu-based interactions to, to what now? Um, maybe you can um, help top this off by saying, like, you know, how, how has this, this antique world transformed um, into today's environment? Well, you know, I think we're going to be talking about that over the series, over and over, about what's changing and what's new. But, you know, simple things like, A, the cloud. So a lot of that IT stuff, you know, you can just wipe a credit card and get access to machines now. Um, and uh, there's some administration there potentially, but a lot of uh, software as a service even hides that from you. Mm-hmm. B, we're dealing with much more intelligent interfaces. Um, you know, and here's, here's a point where maybe I'll give you a little credit, Jeff. You know, uh, Jeff's a, <laughs> really one of the world leaders in data visualization and interaction. Um, and, you know, that technology has gone so much further than drag and drop uh, over the last decade, two decades. Um, and then, um, you know, the rise of intelligent software, things like, you know, AI driven suggestions or program synthesis to auto generate code and to help guide you through tasks. All of that stuff's at play today and more. So I think, you know, we're going to be hearing about this, Jeff, over the series. What is new? What is happening? Um, but man, uh, sea change. And I'd say the biggest piece of it is, um, you know, the cloud right now. Mm. So I want to turn the focus further on to you, Jeff, if I may. Okay. Talked a little bit about my mom and how I got inspired to uh, get into computing and data. Um, but what about you? Uh, what made you want to, you know, grow up and work in data and visualization and all those things? What about, you know, being a fireman or an astronaut or president of the United States? What about those jobs? You know, funny, funny that you, you mentioned all those. I, I did want to be a fireman and then and, and you know, I think I was about four. Um, and then, you know, for a good number of years, I wanted to be an astronaut. My grandmother wanted me to be president, but I, I, it seemed like a pretty stressful uh, career path to try and, and set upon. So instead, I ended up in computer science. I never envisioned myself being a, a, a data person specifically or data engineering, um, but it was sort of like um, 
uh, a love that was formed out of necessity. Um, so it actually started for me back in um, you know, those undergraduate years, um, all the way back at UC Berkeley again. I remember taking courses in human-computer interaction when I was shown examples of data visualization. Um, and the one that I remember really vividly was this technique that was developed at Xerox Park, and it was called the hyperbolic tree. Oh, yeah. And the idea was that you have these tree or hierarchy structures, and they grow exponentially with depth. Well, it turns out hyperbolic geometry also expands exponentially as you go out. And so they had the good idea of, well, can we actually perform layout? So basically have a visual positioning of like the nodes of this tree within a hyperbolic space and then project that into this view. But really, I mean, that, that's intellectually interesting, but really it was just the feeling of watching people whip around the sort of you know, kind of combination of, of zooming and panning and feel like you're rolling around in this huge information space. Um, it just really captured my imagination and attention. And so I started digging in and then over the years got really involved um, in developing new techniques and tools for data visualization. And that includes lots of different projects um, where, you know, you want to build visualizations for something you care about. Back in my thesis, we looked at things like census data. So how we have visualizations of over 150 years of the development of, in this case, um, United States society, including like, you know, how early do people get married? What kind of jobs do people have? All really fascinating stuff. And at the end of the day, you share these visualizations. You want people to explore them. And that entire story elides where I spent the vast majority of my time on projects like that, which was getting access to the data, understanding what's wrong in the data, what you can't trust, what are all the different transformations you have to do to make that data actionable. Um, and so I was living that, um, you know, that, that wrangling pain, we sometimes call it. And that got me really interested in thinking about ways in which we could transform that process. Can we make it easier um, to clean up and transform data, which, you know, as you know, that's a conversation that we've been having back and forth for years. And then as we dug into it, turned out to be not just something that's practically useful, but really draws on all these exciting intellectual threads that you brought up earlier, you know, visualization, data management, you know, program transformation and synthesis. So it ends up being this really amazing grab bag of important ideas in computer science that you can put together um, to really important practical goals. And so it was just that need um, to do all, you know, this desire to do these other things and the need um, to really think about the data critically and really have robust engineering um, behind those data uh, pipelines uh, that brought me into this space. I like the way you said that. I mean, it's like dog fooding your stuff, right? You started out doing visualizations. You're excited about them and realized you had to spend all your time doing data wrangling. And then you applied the ideas, or we, I'd like to take a little credit, a bunch of us working together applied the ideas that we were thinking about from data visualization back into the data wrangling pipeline, right? You were using your solutions to scratch the itches of your problems, which I just think is like, that's how good stuff happens. Yeah. You know, we've been talking about data wrangling. That's not really a very well-defined term either. <laughs> you know, you want to talk about that a little bit? What's a data wrangler anyway? Yeah, yeah. So what is a data wrangler? Um, so the, you know, the, the data are getting loose out on the farm, you know, or out on the ranch, and you have to run out there with your lasso and uh, get your data in a line and, you know, you know, make sure they don't like, you know, break through the fence at the wrong time. And honestly, I mean, that actually kind of, you know, if you're doing data integration work with lots of data sets, that, that's not too far afield from how it feels. So part of it is this sort of corralling the data in the sense of, you know, understanding what's there 
understanding what's necessary to transform the data and oftentimes to make different data sets interoperate. So if I want to be able to learn from data sets by enriching one data set with the content of another, unfortunately, it's not always just, oh, here's a, a simple column that, that aligns perfectly between data sets, go do a join or something. A lot of times there's a bunch of transformation work uh, necessary uh, to make that not only be successful so that you can use the data, but also be correct. Um, if you're transforming between units or timestamps, et cetera, you really start to get into this you know, gnarlier transformation work um, that's necessary as part of data wrangling. And so anything that you have to do to prepare a data set so that it's actionable for the task that you want to perform, to me, that's like the, the heart of what, what data wrangling is. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We used a bunch of metaphors that are um, kind of hard work, physical work. And computers are supposed to make our lives easier. Like, why isn't there an algorithm that will just solve this problem? Like, give me some data and then, like, you know, make it good. What's what's all this work that we're trying to make easier? You know, why should – how far away are we, Jeff, from, like, a black box that just does data wrangling for us? I'd say it depends. Like all good questions, um, the answer is always it depends. If you have a very well-defined and well-scoped task, like maybe use a lot of automation that you can apply to that. But in terms of the big picture, you know, I'd say we're, you know, I'd go as far as say we're an infinite distance uh, from full automation. I'd say one of the things I love about data wrangling is as viewed as an HCI or human computer interaction problem is that it's thoroughly resistant to complete automation. Um, it requires human interpretation, like, there's a strange value in your data set, maybe some wild outlier. You know, is that a bug? Um, if you know, was there a spike in the electric line and the sensor went batty, or is that a real observation and something that you want to take into account that might actually be the most important discovery in your data set? Well, that's very hard to make those types of determinations automatically. It re- requires interpretation. But even you know, more simply, like. If a system doesn't know what your goal is, it won't necessarily know what the correct transformations, what the correct output format should be. So a lot of the even more routine types of transformations, whether it's filtering data, sorting data, adding certain columns, you know, maybe by um, you know, writing down a formula, all of that's guided by you know, an analyst or a data engineer's view of like, well, what is this data to be used for? And so that understanding of the role of data within a larger organizational process is maybe not always spoken about as directly as it should, but clearly is a huge part in, in determining what needs to be done. And so there's a lot of um, you know, flexibility uh, and space for decisions in, in data wrangling and transformation. And knowing which ones to do require, again, like, not just this domain expertise, but this understanding of the context of use. Yeah. So even as the technology rolls forward, I agree with you like 100%. Uh, it's it's always going to be the case that like you have to use the tools specifically for the task at hand. Tools will get better. Some of the steps will go away and, and yeah. we have good, you know, we have good progress on making some of the stuff easier using technology. But but the end to end process is always, you know, kind of customized to the environment. Um so, like I like to say, you know, it's lifetime job security for data engineers. Right? Yeah, it's, you're not going to be replaced by robots. Yeah, yeah. But what's exciting though is this opportunity that you know we with a, a person, you know, driving that process. You know, as you alluded to, what are the forms of like you know new types of interaction or you know new collaborations with with whether it's AI or machine learning algorithms or other automated techniques? We've mentioned program synthesis already. How do you going to you know supercharge a human user um, to use these things to like achieve you know uh, different data transformations you know much more easily and at scale? 
Yeah, I love that idea of the like human AI interface. So as the algorithms get smarter and take on tasks, how do we interact with them? How do we know if what they did was right? How do we know they didn't do damage? Yeah. Like uh, I have a colleague at Berkeley, Arnko Dragan, she works on human robot interaction. And in her case, like she's trying to make sure that some, you know, big multi-ton robotic machine and a person can collaborate on a task without the person getting like, you know, punched in the face by the robot arm. Well, I, I certainly appreciate that goal. Yeah, right. That makes sense. That's kind of the same here. It's like you're in charge of a data pipeline. You need to own the product that comes out the back end. You got some big black box algorithm that like changed the data values. Yeah. And I think that this has been an important problem for a long time, but I think it really has taken on new relevance as, you know, machine learning, you know, continues to eat the world. So they say um, there's a lot of opportunity for harm and damage. Um, and it doesn't end with the data, but, you know, in many cases, it starts with it. Um, even how that data you know, was, how you chose to collect it, what's represented, what's not. And of course, all the different types of wrangling operations and transformations you might do have the, you know, the, the potential to, to really wreak havoc downstream. And so I think this is an important topic and one that I look forward to coming back to over future podcast episodes. Yeah, sounds good. Hey, we got a real time interrupt. Adam Wilson is in the house. Hey, Adam. Hey, I, I heard there was a uh, uh, did engineering party going on, so I decided to crash. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think we did warn you about this. I don't know, you know, your your planning skills a little bit late, but we're happy to have you. <laughs> Fashionably late, Adam. Nicely played. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Jeff was making fun of me for being old, and uh, I think I am actually the oldest person on the call. But still, um, you used to work at companies from like the bad old days of data integration, right? And we were talking about that a while ago. Um, Tell us a little something about like what you appreciate about modern data engineering that you know used to cause extreme pain back when you were at these sort of archetypal old school data integration companies. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's been interesting to see how um, how things have have changed uh, you know over the last uh, couple of decades. I think uh, you know when in running uh, you know product management and product marketing uh, you know for. Uh, traditional or legacy ETL companies, you know, we used to spend lots of time with the users and we'd always go out and you know, always trying to go after the business value story. So tell me, so like, what are, what are people doing with the data? And they just look back at us and, you know, these are the ETL developers and they'd say, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I get a spec and then, you know, I generate a bunch of mappings and some number of months or quarters later, we generate these warehouses and we then you know, turn the users loose on it. And invariably they come back and they say, well, now that we see the data, that's not really what we wanted. Or now that we see the data, our questions have totally changed. But there was like this complete disconnect between the people that were actually doing the data engineering work and the people that were ultimately, you know, consuming the data and, and really kind of, you know, working with the data products. And so, um, so it's been really interesting to see now how collaborative this has become and how, how much, business context matters and you're seeing data engineers now that really understand business context in a more profound way, but we're also seeing more interesting technologies and approaches that will allow subject matter experts to kind of be welcomed into the process. So it's, it's much more iterative, um, much more collaborative and than, than historically it had been. So um, to me, that's what's speeding everything up and, and, and frankly getting to sort of better better outcomes as part of that process. And that was something that, you know, legacy, you know, ETL approaches just never, never really crack the code on how to cater to multiple personas, how to facilitate that type of collaboration. Um, just, you just didn't see that, you know, um, you know, in sort of version one of this world. 
Yeah. I think, you know, collaboration and these handoffs between skill sets is a topic we're going to want to come back to in the podcast, I think, over time. Um, but that perspective is awesome. So, you know, I want to do a quick speed round just because it's our first, uh, our first time doing the podcast. Um, so we'll start with you, Adam, since we're going. You know, tell us something that we don't know about you. Um, let's see, that you don't know about me. Uh, I'll step outside the, the, the data realm. This is, I'll give you some personal stuff. So um, I, much like yourself, Joe, I originally hail from the Midwest and uh, very proud of my, uh, my Illinois heritage, but I've been out in California and San Francisco now since, since really dot-com days. Um, so uh, this is about as long as I've lived anywhere. And I finally allowed myself to root for local sports teams now that I've been here for over 20 years. But uh, I live in San Francisco with uh, you know, three kids, uh, 14, 12, and 10, you know, who pretty much uh, you know, kind of run the show here. And uh, I guess uh, I'm an avid uh, soccer player and soccer fan from way back. So I guess those are a few, uh, few tidbits about me. Excellent. Dr. Jeffrey Hare, what do you got for us? Um, yeah, well, what do people not know? Well, uh, back in my youth, so like say high school and, and college, um, I'm not a very skilled musician, but I did play in a number of punk bands. And one thing that I did carry from that, that, that uh, experience is the difficulty of naming a band, which actually is, I think for a punk band is the hardest part of the entire process. Something I was able to carry forward into our experiences with Trifacta as we dealt with the similarly difficult challenge of what do you name a company? Yeah, yeah. So, so give <laughs> us the origin story on that name, Trifacta. Where does that come from? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, you recall, Joe, that wasn't our first choice of name. Um, we actually, uh, Joe, uh, Sean Kandel, our co-founder, and I um, actually really liked the name Levity. And the idea was to make working with data feel light and fun. Um, but if you recall, you know, advisors and investors warned us, you know, it wasn't serious enough. But more accurately and more importantly, the name was just really general. What does levity mean? You know, does it give a good sense of the problems we were trying to solve? And so we had to go, of course, back to the drawing board, really, you know, you know, obviously coming up with a name involves, you know, ideation and compromise and, and find something that everyone like dislikes equally. You know, maybe that's your winner. Um, but in this case, we were lucky. We actually ended on something that we were pretty happy about, uh, which was Trifacta. And, and why that name? Well, what are we trying to help people do? Well, we wanted to bring people, data and computation together. So there's your three to achieve an analytic trifecta. And of course, to provide facts and which people could act on. Um, but, you know, there's also a simple inside joke that, of course, we had three co-founders. So myself, Joe, and Sean. So um, you can pick which, which trifecta you prefer. That's action-packed. <laughs> that, what happened to the international data machine idea? I thought IDM, that sounded really good. Oh, well, that's intelligent <laughs> dance music. That's already taken for any uh, like Apex Twin fans out there. But, uh, Joe, what about you? You don't get off the hook without telling us, you know. What's something we don't know about you? Okay, well, um, you may know this, actually, because I like to talk about it, but I play the trumpet pretty seriously, um, and COVID's been a really fun time for me um, because um, you can't tell professional musicians from amateur musicians on the internet, right? So <laughs> I actually had a four-hour radio gig with a group of 12 experimental improvisers a few months back on uh, KFJC, which is one of the experimental radio stations here in the Bay, and we played all sorts of noises. Um, but also, um, a friend of mine in L.A., James Combs, who has uh, late of the band Arson Garden, which, Adam, you may have seen in the Midwest as a college kid, um, and currently in the band Great Willow. Uh, they have an album coming out where I play. I did the horn arrangements and play the horn tracks. So 
Uh, I've been busy playing the trumpet when I'm not doing data stuff. Um, and then my other claim to fame is that, uh, let's see, I've married seven people. One of them's my wife, and the other six are people where I officiated at their wedding. Um, I was even at one of those weddings. Uh, that's right. That's right. So one of those weddings was two esteemed uh, AI folks. So maybe we'll get one or two of them on the podcast at some point. Okay, we'll wrap up there this week. Thanks for joining us on the Data Wranglers. If you have a question or a topic you'd like us to tackle, reach out to us at datawranglers at trifacta.com. As always, make sure to review and subscribe to the Data Wranglers wherever you like to get your podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Trifacta, the data engineering cloud. You can also listen to and subscribe to the podcast at trifacta.com slash podcast. On behalf of Joe and the whole team, thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Hare. See you next time.